You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Have you ever noticed how easy it can be at times to believe God's grace for other people more than yourself? We kind of assume at times, see if you nod, so maybe we're we're resonating a little bit. If if it doesn't, we'll come to the rest of you in just a second. Sometimes we're kind of, we get in this place, it's easy to get there where, where, where we're trapped and we feel like, like, like we want to love Jesus, but we're not sure he can love us. And if other people kind of knew our background, we're really sure they wouldn't love us, even though they say they love Jesus. And so it's easy to believe that, like, like Jesus loves you, and I know you got a background too, but, you know, Jesus loves you. I'm not sure he can love me. And over the years, I've run into people that, that, that kind of carry that, that weight and that burden. A lot of times it's the ones that make the joke about, you know, if I were to walk into the church, the roof would fall in or something like, or lightning would strike, or I've heard all kinds of variations of that over the last 20 years or so. Like, if I show up, you better watch out because the wrath of God will fall. And it's easier to believe God's grace for somebody else sometimes because we know how much grace it would take. And sometimes it's, it's, it's not, always, not always easy to believe that the Lord's grace is big enough for us in that way. Even if we're not quite in that place, We can be at a place where we've walked with Jesus, and yet there are places in our, like individual places in our lives that we haven't yielded to Him. We'd like to. We think we'd like to. Maybe we wouldn't like to. But it feels like whatever that thing is, whatever, like whether it's some kind of addiction or some kind of anger or some unforgiveness that we simply just, it's been there for a long time and we cannot let it go. Jesus, you cannot have my unforgiveness for this person. It feels so deep. And like there's other places in my life where he's got, he's got it all, but that place, I don't know if I can let that go yet. And it's easier to believe his grace in some places of my life than it is in other places of my life. Can he make me new there? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want him to. As Paul wraps up his letter to the Galatians, he begins to say some things about Jesus that should comfort anyone who's ever been in either of those places. If we've been in the place where it's easier to believe his grace for you than me, Paul's got a word for us. If we've been in the place where It's easy to believe His grace in that section of my life, but I'm not sure I can handle His grace in this section. Paul's got a word for me. He introduces that word of encouragement by focusing on the excellencies of Christ. He's the only one worthy of all our confidence and boasting. I don't want to boast in myself. I want to boast in Jesus because I don't have confidence in myself to do anything for me, have confidence in Jesus. And then he says this sentence. I repeated it a couple times, so I hope you caught it. And I hope it caught you, because we don't talk this way a lot. He says, 
new creation is. You remember what he said? New creation is, it's on the screen, say it with me, everything. And I wonder if that catches us a little askance sometimes, because typically when we go to church and hear the gospel, or maybe, I hope maybe it's not typical anymore. I'd love to be wrong about this. But frequently, and certainly as I was coming along, you hear this kind of thing all over the time. You hear the gospel presented something like, hey, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. You can be forgiven of your sins if you pray this prayer. And when you pray the prayer, you can be confident that you will what? Go to heaven when you die. And if that's my framework, I'm not sure I know what to do when Paul says new creation is everything. Because I'm pretty sure, like, if my hope is just to die and go off to some spiritual kind of translucent reality, is that new creation? I, I don't think so. Heaven? Like, what are we dealing with here? And so when Paul comes along and says, new creation is, like, are you listening? <laughs> so when Paul, let's try it again. So when Paul comes along and says, new creation is, what do we do with that? What do you do with that? How do you, how do you handle it? And, and we go, well, you know, it's easy, preacher. He makes us new creations when he forgives our sins. And then we die and go to heaven. The trouble with that is, that's not quite what he says here. He doesn't say, you being a new creation by yourself inside your heart is the main thing, everything. He says, a new creation, new creation in totality is, you're going to get this by the end of this, I promise. We'll stay as long as we have to, so get it right soon, okay? <laughs> I don't know if that's a warning or a threat or what, but here we are. So what's Paul after? Like, what does he want for us? And this is the thing. This is the piece where we're in that place. I'm like, grace for them. I don't know about it. I don't know if Jesus can do this for me. And then Paul comes in. He says, no, no, no. Like, you don't understand. New creation is everything. It's you, it's them, and it's the whole world. It's all of it. And he wants the Galatians to begin to wrestle with this central thing. He wants us to wrestle with this too. And not just wrestle with it, but embrace it, receive it, give thanks for it, celebrate it, and let Jesus do what he's going to do. And the thing is, for Paul, and this is for all of us, the one who makes all things new is able to make each of us new and completely new for the new creation. And what he does for us individually, he does across the board, everywhere, all the way. Now, to begin to, like this little sentence, I mean, four words, new creation is, all right, good. May not take as long as I was afraid. Four little words, but they are, this is like a suitcase that, you ever been traveling and you're like sitting on your suitcase trying to get the zipper around it? No? Okay, well, I've seen it, it's there, like you're in the airport or something, some of those bags have tape around them, like duct tape, because it's exploding and it needs, it needs to be unpacked. This sentence is exploding and it has to be unpacked. For Paul, there is a, a theme that runs from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible that explains the story of new creation. And if we understand that theme, if we understand that story, then we're in a better position to understand why Paul says new creation is everything and how he can make us new in that way. And not just us, but everything. So I like to talk about the Bible's big bookends. Everybody knows where the Bible starts. Where does it start? It starts with a garden and it starts with creation. 
God said, let there be, and there was. And he makes human beings, he makes them in his image, he puts them in a garden, and then he gives them the world. He's like, Here, here's the garden, there's an untamed world out there, I've created it, and I want to entrust it to you. So you, you go make it beautiful. And the idea is the human vocation, when he says, have dominion over all the stuff that I've made, is that the human vocation, like the garden is contained, but it's their vocation to expand it and make kind of the space outside the garden fruitful. That's creation. God does this work to make the world. But the project goes off the tracks pretty soon, doesn't it? Uh, and it goes off the tracks because the human beings that God entrusted the project to rebel against him. And they get to this point where they say, you know what? We know God is supposed to be God, but we think we can do a better job. You've probably been in that place. I won't ask you to raise your hand. God should be God, but we, we would obviously be better at it than him. And so they take matters into their own hands, and they rebel. And this creation that God has made, the garden with all of its beauty, like all the, all the glory is brought under a, under a curse. The ground is cursed because the guy who was supposed to cultivate it rebelled against God. So we start out with creation, but then creation begins to come undone. It, instead of flourishing, it decays. Instead of loveliness, you wind up with thorns. But that's not the end of the story, is it? That's just chapter 3 in the whole Bible. And if you start there, you think, all right, that's cool. Jesus came to save us so that, you know, we don't have to experience the curse. But what are the real implications of that? And if you kind of take all the way to the other end of the Bible, you remember the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Not Revelations, by the way. If anybody, Don't ever let anybody tell you the book ends with an S. Just Revelation. There's actually some T-shirts floating around. It says Revelations, and there's a big red mark through the S. It's just Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus to John. And at the very end of it, you remember what happens. I'll tell you what doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is what you see in end-of-the-world movies. Anybody ever seen an end-of-the-world movie? Like an Armageddon kind of thing, right? What happens in those movies? Like an asteroid comes in and blows everything up or something. Or like a major blizzard comes along and everything's covered in snow and there's like those last three people trying to find a fire to build or something, right? Or, or a nuclear something happens and everybody's dead, right? Like something happens or there's a rapture and God sort of unleashes a comet storm on the world. If you read the end of the Bible, it doesn't read like that. What does it say? How does it read at the very end of the story? Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth give way to the new. They get renewed and transformed into this new one. And there's a holy city, and the city comes down. I won't read the whole thing. But eventually, John, as he's seeing this vision, winds up in a garden. And we're thinking, hang on, I've heard garden before. It's at the other end of the Bible. That's why we call it the Bible's big bookends. The whole story starts with creation in a garden, and it comes to its climax with new creation in a garden. So all the way across, like 
Jesus doesn't take his people away from the world. He makes his home in the world. And when the eternal, glorious Son of God, fully human, fully divine, dwells in this world, it's kind of like, you've seen that show, Total Home Makeover? It's like that, but for the universe. Is that a helpful analogy? Like, strip it down to the studs and redo the entire thing. The whole world gets made new. When Jesus shows up, the entire garden becomes a flur- the, the entire world, the entire cosmos becomes a flourishing garden. Which, by the way, was whose job in the first place? Adam. And he failed. He rebelled. So there's this big picture thing, right? From creation to what? New creation. And the Bible never, ever, 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 ever gives us an image of a God who saves his people out of the creation. The Bible never, ever, ever, ever gives us a picture or a story or a verse or an image about a God who takes the people he called to make the world flourish and eject them from the world. Like, that's not in the story. It's not there. What does he do? He sends his son, his beloved son, his only son, into the world into the wilderness, into the desolate places. To do what? To build a garden. To make it flourish. And he rescues a family, this family, to join him in the project. That's how the story goes. That's where the the whole picture... So so if you want to be biblical, you got to have a framework, a biblical framework. And the framework starts with creation, and it ends with new creation. God's response to human sin isn't trash can the whole project. It's, I'm going to show up and redeem the whole project. You think you can destroy my creation with your sin. I'm going to show you. I'm going to do new creation. That's a story all the way across. And Paul lives in a world where that's, like, that's, his, that's his frame of reference. Paul's with Isaiah. I'm not, like, not going to read all the new creation stuff, but there's a few things that you want to remember. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, here's what God says. I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. That sounds a lot like something we've already heard. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their, fall, eat their fruit. They shall, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. That's the curse on Adam. You're going to work, but the ground is going to produce thorns. Isaiah says when the new creation comes, your labor will not be in vain. Or bear children for calamity, they will be They shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. 
they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. You get this stunning image of a world where everything wrong is made right. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to do this new creation thing, and you won't be around to enjoy it because you're going to get ejected from the world. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, hey, the world's a mess. Hope you get saved out of it. He doesn't say that, does he? That's not the Bible. That's not the narrative. It's not the story. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. All through the story, start to finish, God makes a world. We mess up the world. God repairs the world and offers it to us again to inhabit it, to care for it, to make it fruitful, to make it flourish, and to fellowship with him in it. Because at the end of the story, like we said, God makes his home on this planet. At the end of the Bible, if you say, where is Jesus? He's on earth. That's how the story is. Now, that may feel a little jarring to some of us. It sure did me when I began to realize, like, <laughs> the way I've heard the story and the way the story is written in the text ain't quite the same way sometimes. But we're going to trust the Word of God. We want to trust that God has good things for us in the future. That he cares for us and that this is, his, this is life and that it sheds light on our vocation. So what does that have to do with Easter? Where does that come in? Throughout the Bible and in lots of places, again, we're not going to do them all today. We don't have time. Easter lunch is waiting. But throughout the Bible, all the way through, the Gospels, the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is explained, framed, portrayed, and revealed to be Day one of new creation. Here's a good way to think about it. We're pretty familiar with the Gospel of John. Most of us know how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. And if we've read our Bibles a little bit, we know if you're saying in the beginning, you're quoting another really, really well-known text. Which one? Genesis chapter 1. So we're thinking, all right, he didn't just make that up. He got it from somewhere. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he's He's, he wants us to think about how God created the world in the first place, but he wants us to think about it in light of Jesus. All right, I can handle that. So John's telling a creation story, but it's not the old creation story. What should we call it? Ah, let's call it a new creation story. John's telling a new creation story. There's a lot more to be said, but you fast forward to the, the day of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. We spent some time reflecting on this at sunrise service this morning. John chapter 20 begins this way. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark on the first day of the week. And then you get around to verse 18, 19. He says, on the first day of the week, when it was evening. And again, like he's already hinted to us that we should be thinking about Genesis when we read the Gospel of John. And so here I am. It's the most important day in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't mention a single thing that happens while the sun is up. Weird. But he does tell me about what happened in the morning and the evening. Now, again, I've been reading Genesis, so that morning-evening framework sounds a little familiar. It's the other way around, right? Genesis 1, evening, morning, evening, morning. But it's close enough for us to catch the resonance, isn't it? So Jesus is raised. First day of the week. Evening, morning, morning, evening. Could it be that John is telling us about 
again, about a new creation story. He goes even further. Once we get that hint, okay, I got this hint. The Sunday Jesus was raised is the first day, is the first day of the new creation, the new week. Like God created the first world in that week. He's creating the new world starting on the first day of this week. If I count backwards, the day before the first day of the week in Jewish thinking is what day? It's the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do on that holy Saturday? This one's easy, friends. He rests. Somebody got it. He rests in the tomb on that slab. From what? From the work he did the day before when he said, it is finished. From the work he did the day before when Pilate said, here is the man. The man who fulfills what it means to be human in a way that Adam failed to. Here's the one who embodies the character of God. Here's the one who shows us what it looks like for the image of God to be well-born and carried truly. Here's the, here's the most human being in the history of the world. Right here. And he's the one whose arms are stretched, whose feet and hands and side are pierced, who bleeds for us and dies for us, and who says the work of redemption is finished. That happened on day six, which is also the day God created human beings. So Genesis, day six, human beings, day seven, rest, and then things go downhill. Gospel of John, day six, the most human being you've ever encountered in your life, in Jesus, the God-man, day seven, he rests. And then what happens on the first day of the next week? Call it day eight if you want. The new story starts. New creation explodes out of the tomb. I wonder what it would be like to be in the tomb before the stone is rolled away. Before the light begins to come in that doorway. Before the angels show up. Before Mary and Peter show up. As that cold, dead body lies on that stone slab. If you could be there, maybe off on the side, and if you could see just a little bit, I know it's dark, but maybe you can see just a little bit, and you see his chest rise, and you're thinking it's an optical, it's just an illusion, because like if you're hanging out in a tomb, you would probably be scared some like zombie thing would happen, right? But then it happens again. His chest rises as his lungs begin to fill with air for the first time. Blood begins to move through his veins as his heart begins to beat. There's a lovely line from a song that was written a few years ago. The blood that bought us peace with God is racing through his veins at that moment. His heart beats, and he's alive. And with that first beat of that formerly dead heart, new creation starts. Day one. Day one of the new world God is making. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He's the Lord of the new creation. He is God not writing off the project, but rescuing. Now, here's the thing. 
His work is comprehensive in scope. His work is sufficient for every human sin, frailty, weakness, folly, all of it. The one who brings new creation. The one who makes all things new. And we've already been told this, the thing that starts on the first Easter is come, comes to its climax on the day Jesus returns. This is what we mean when we say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Like that hasn't happened yet. It's coming later. Jesus is going to show up and what was true of him on that first Easter day is going to be true of who? Those who belong to him. You will share in all things, including his resurrection. He will take your dead body and raise it from the grave. This is one of those places where I frequently say, some of you have heard this before, I'd love to be walking through a cemetery in Huntsville on the day Jesus comes back, because that cemetery is where my dad is buried. To put flesh on the image, I'd love to be in that place, in the sod over that site where I've visited so many times and wept so often. That sod begins to peel back. Maybe there's some earthworms just under the surface and some bugs, and those markers begin to crack in that concrete vault that we saw them lower 33 years ago. Dust. And the bolts on that casket come loose. And a glorified, resurrected, newly immortal body will rise. That's what Easter means. And that, when you say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, that is what you are talking about, whether you realize it or not. Talking about cemeteries becoming inhabited by the living. Not zombies. Newly glorified human beings, just like Jesus after his resurrection. So there's the line. Resurrection of Jesus, day one of the new creation. Your resurrection and the resurrection of those who you love, who belong to Jesus, that's the climax. That's the culmination. That's the God is pleased with the work he's done. Jesus is going to return. When he does that for us, he's going to do it for the whole world. Paul says in Romans 8, all creation is waiting for the day when it gets set free from bondage to decay. Resurrection isn't just about Jesus, and it's not just about us. It's about the whole world. The whole world is dying. Everything in it. But on the day that Christ comes, he will set it free. And it will flourish. And it will become not a place of decay, but a cosmic garden. Because we read Revelation already, remember? So here's the thing, and this is where Paul wants the Galatians to settle in. There's a lot going on there. We've only just begun to scratch the surface. If Jesus can do that for his dead body, like if God the Father can raise Jesus' dead body, and if Jesus and the Spirit can make all things new, if he can take the world and the cosmos that is in bondage to decay and set it free, he can deal with the things in your life that you don't want to offer to him. The one who makes all things new can make each of us new and all of us new. It's not one of these deals where Jesus can help you, but I'm too far gone. 
No, when that blood that bought us peace with God begins racing through his veins, he can do all things. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's too far gone. I'm going to say that again. Nobody's too far gone. No one is so far gone that the reach of the perfect love of the resurrected Lord Jesus cannot heal you. He can heal you. Not just here, not just there, not just that relationship or that addiction or that anger or that unforgiveness. He can heal you. Through and through, all the way, completely. And he wants to. I wonder if the theme of this Easter can be those four words we've said together a few times. New creation is everything. This is God's plan. It's his purpose. And this day, Easter, is the day we celebrate the birth of the new world that God is making. And it gives us hope. It gives us certain hope. And invites us to look forward to the day when the project gets its final completion. We are raised healed in every way. As we anticipate that, I wonder if we can take those places in our lives or that fear that Jesus maybe isn't strong enough to heal us. I wonder if we can sort of take those things in our hands and offer them to him. So much more could be said about this text, but I think we can linger here a moment. Where are the places in my heart the fears, the anxiety, the I'm not sure Jesus can heal this, or I'm not sure I want him to heal this, or he can help you, but he can't help me. And I'm not, I can't go, I can only go to church on Easter because that's when anybody can go. The rest of the year, the ceiling will fall in or something. I wonder if I can take those fears, those anxieties, and confess, Jesus, won't you, won't you, won't you heal this? I haven't talked to my kids in years. Won't you heal this? My parents don't get me. Won't you heal that? thing happened at work and I'm not sure I'm going to, like I'm not sure it's going to work out. Won't you heal that? If you can do new creation for the whole world, can't you do it in my heart? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.